know, you can tell a lot about a community based upon whether there's a Walmart or a Whole Foods uh, in that community. But it's also true, though, that there's kind of a unique sort of culture inside the Walmart and inside of the Whole Foods. And one of the ways that that, that immediately uh, comes to my mind is when I go into either of them with my wife and our five sons. Because if you go into a Walmart, it's not a very judgy place. And so the kids can run around and the kids can misbehave and the kids can do whatever it is they're going to do. And most people in the Walmart are going to be like, yeah, I understand. I've been there. But the times when we go into a Whole Foods, it's a little different sort of experience. You've got a very natural, organic, kind of hippie vibe going on in the Whole Foods. And I will notice sometimes that when we come in with this train of five boys behind us, that people will kind of give us really suspicious sorts of uh, glances. And sometimes people will come up and say things along the lines of, are all of these yours? Yes. Do you know what causes that? Yes. And sometimes people will just give us a look that is almost a kind of look of, disgust or this is kind of freakish or maybe this is even a little selfish. And what I've tried to do when I'm in the Whole Foods and that happens is not to respond with any kind of personal offense, but just to lean over and wink and whisper, we use organic birth control. (laughs) Now, Five children is not exactly a massive, freakish number in the history of the world or even around the world right now. I mean, that's one short of the Brady Bunch, you know, in our popular culture. Uh, And it's certainly not approaching reality television uh, sort of world, although people increasingly will seem to think that that's the case. And it's also true that I'm not one of those guys who would say everybody's got to have the maximum number of children that they can possibly get. I'm not the kind of guy who says you need to register for a minivan on your bridal registry or uh, those sorts of things. But I notice it when I come in and I see people who will see these children and will almost feel sorry for me who cannot imagine being in a situation of navigating five children. This is somehow in their minds an enormous burden uh, that would be placed upon you. And I understand that. The, the reason that I don't, uh, that, that I don't have a, a sense of being offended by that is because that attitude toward children was exactly the attitude toward children that I had when I married. We had so many people who were saying to us, make sure that you don't have children right now because of how expensive it's going to be. Make sure that you don't have children for a long time so that you can really get to know one another and and, and learn to, to love one another. And I had kind of internalized all of those attitudes in such a way that I spent a lot of time being fearful. What would happen if we were to have a child right now? How would we be able to afford that child? What would happen and change in our lives with my education or with her job or with whatever it is that we're, we're doing? And we had this 
Whole Foods attitude in our Walmart family for a long time when it comes to children until the Lord took us through a long period of infertility and miscarriages, which the Lord used for me to be able to see that children are not just an extension of myself. Children are not just something that I can fit into my life plan. Children are a gift from the Lord, and the call to be with children and the call to rear children and the call to love children is also a call to carry a cross. It's a call to hurt. It's a call to bleed. It's a call toward spiritual warfare, and it is a call to consistently be reminding oneself These children are not burdens. These children bear the image of God and are blessings. That's a difficult thing sometimes for us to grasp. But that is right at the heart, I believe, of everything that we're talking about over the next couple of days. When we look around and we see the kind of world that we're in right now, where right now, While you and I are gathered in this room together, there is no doubt a young woman, maybe even a half a block from here, who is making an appointment at a clinic where this time tomorrow, her unborn child will be placed in a bag marked medical waste. It's probably true that right now, while we're in this room together, there's a young girl in Asia who's being trafficked, and she's being sent into the room of an American businessman who has paid less than he would pay for a steak dinner in order to unspeakably abuse her. It's it's true right now that while we're in this room, there is no doubt, maybe even just a matter of blocks from here, an elderly woman locked away in a nursing home crying for the, 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 the company of her family or her friends who haven't seen her in months and months and months and months. All of those horrors are going on around us. And when we think about what it means to be a pro-life people, we can pass legislation and we must. We can devise campaigns about the dignity of life and we must. We can organize one another to march for the sanctity of every human life, and we must. But that is not enough if we do not also get at the root issue here, which is the tendency that we have to see the person we consider to be a burden as invisible and to be pushed away and to be dealt with. That's what is at the heart of this. The the mechanism that would allow one to turn away from the ultrasound and not see a neighbor there is the same mechanism that someone uses to avert his eyes from a homeless person on the street in order to say, if I just don't think about you, that means that you are not here. And yet... That tendency is not new. Scripture we just read a few minutes ago 
is very familiar to most of us who've been Christians for very long and who've been in the church very long. Often we see it up in church nurseries. Uh, often we see this as a, a story that is telling us how warm and, and kind and welcoming uh, Jesus is. And yet this story is not a warm, sentimental story. This episode in the life of Jesus is an act of spiritual warfare. It says that Jesus here, as he is receiving the crowds, there are people who are bringing their children there to be blessed. Maybe some of the children were sick and they knew that Jesus was a healer and they were seeking healing for their children. Maybe these were parents who are just in the situation that many of us are in. We, we look at our children and we say, what's your life going to be? How is your life going to go? And they wanted Jesus to lay hands on them or pronounce a blessing upon them or to pray for them to God. And the, the crowds here, as they're pressing in, the disciples, the scripture says, is, is trying to push them back. They don't want the children there. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, people loved their children. And certainly in the Jewish world, people loved their children. And children were part of the family and welcomed in the family precisely because they were loved. But children as children were not seen as important in the first century world. Children as children were often seen as a nuisance in the first century world. And the disciples, no doubt, were doing exactly what they thought they ought to do, which is to protect the time of Jesus. Jesus has many things to do, a gospel to preach, demons to cast out, people to heal, a kingdom to establish. And when you have crowds who are coming in, you would want to say, who are the most important people for Jesus to talk to? You would want Jesus to be talking to the religious leaders, to be talking to the political leaders, to be talking to the rich people, to be talking to those who are heads of their families so that the gospel and the mission could kind of trickle down. And yet the scripture says here that Jesus was indignant. He was ticked off at his disciples here. There is an anger that is coming up in Jesus, which we do not often see. When the boat is about to capsize on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is sleeping and says, well, what's the big deal? At other times, Jesus seems to just be utterly decaffeinated while everyone else is panicking. But Jesus here is indignant and says, no, 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 no. You're going to bring the children to me. Now, why? We have a mission here. And if we do not get what Jesus is saying to us here, we will not be able to carry out that mission. Because what Jesus is doing here doesn't make sense. It does seem to be a waste of time 
to spend time with the people who are not going to be able to change anything, who are not going to be able to influence anything, who don't have any power, and who seem to be takers of what you're giving rather than givers who can bring value to what it is that you are doing. I want you to think about for just a minute. Somebody in your life who wasted time on you. Just for a minute. I'm sure there is somebody in your life at some time that was pivotal and a crisis, maybe that you didn't even know was a crisis, who took the time to pray for you, to encourage you, to disciple you, to speak a word of scripture to you, to be there with you. How many of us have been wastes of time and wastes of energy for the people who have brought life into our world? Jesus does not see the children as a burden. Jesus does not see the children as a distraction from his mission. Jesus sees the children as an integral part of his mission. And so when we're gathered here together and we're saying unborn children have dignity, and when we're saying persecuted religious minorities have dignity, and when we're saying orphans and kids who are trapped in the foster care system bouncing from home to home have dignity, and we're saying the elderly who may not even be able to recognize your face bear dignity. What we are saying together is that we have a different view than the rest of the world about what it takes to matter. The attitude that the disciples have is an easy one to have. And I'm sure every one of us in this room has experienced this, no matter what it is that God's called you to do. You're a pastor, and you feel the pressure to pay attention to that guy that you know has a massive tithe. You're leading that crisis pregnancy resource center, and you you feel the pull to spend time with those people in your community who could really open doors for you in a way that, that others can't. You're, you're, you're serving in your, in your home and you want to give your time toward that one particular child who seems to be gifted and talented more so toward the ones who are struggling to even figure out what algebra is all about. That, that tendency is always there with us and yet Jesus has a different view that ought to transform the pro-life movement in every one of the ways that we carry out the pro-life movement because what Jesus is doing here is grounding the whole framework of the dignity of human life in the gospel, which means a different view of power and a different view of freedom. Notice, first of all, that we have here a different view of power. Jesus has already said, I've come to preach good news to the poor. I've come to preach liberation for the captives. 
I've come to preach sight to the blind. And the disciples here are trying to filter out certain people when in reality, they ought to know better than anyone what Jesus is up to because they are there. Jesus didn't choose Caesars and governors to be his disciples. He chose people in the seafood industry. He chose people who were pariahs because they'd collaborated with a a government that was corrupt in the tax collection racket. He chose people who were from all sorts of what the Apostle Paul says is not considered to be noble or wise or powerful according to the flesh. And yet even then they could not get it. Even then they could not see it and they couldn't see what matters in the moment. You and I have the exact same tendency that we have to fight and battle all the time. I had a parent of a severely disabled child say to me that she had been from church to church to church in her community, and in every single one of these evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches, she had been told, you probably need to find a place that's better equipped than we are for your child. One church in particular that because her child would vocalize uncontrollably said, we don't want you to bring the child into the worship service because it's disturbing to the other worshipers and it's distracting them from worship as they're hearing your child. And this woman said to me, one of the greatest mission fields that the evangelical churches have are parents of severely disabled children, many of whom are unchurched and dechurched and hurting. What an indictment upon us. When what Jesus is telling us here about power, when Jesus is telling us here about what matters, is not just that Jesus is receiving cute babies. It's not just that Jesus is like a shopping mall Santa Claus, bouncing these kids up and down on his lap. The issue here is that Jesus is saying to us that his people are a sign of contradiction. We are saying something completely different than the rest of the world about power. Because we are holding to a kingdom of God that is utterly, utterly different. The vision of Planned Parenthood makes sense in a godless Darwinian universe in which the powerful are able to use that power against those who have no power. That that vision of the world makes sense if what we think ultimately matters is the kind of strength and the kind of power that the world celebrates. If that's true, then weakness and dependence seem to be things that are bad. 
They seem to be things that ought to be done away with. That's the reason why when you're talking to people about the abortion issue, often they will say, but think about the kind of lives that those children will live. Or, or when you're talking about those who are elderly and disabled, then you will have people say, yes, but think about the quality of life of what they will have. There is an assumption there. There's a mentality there that independence and worldly power is what makes life worth living. You and I cannot combat that mentality with the same mentality. We cannot be the sort of people who believe that the way that we move ahead is with power and with influence and with perfectly orchestrated worship services and with perfectly powerfully resonating advertising campaigns. The reason that people will be gathered here for the March for Life tomorrow the reason that the pro-life movement is alive and marching forward 40 years after people assumed that it would be gone and on the other side of history and forgotten along with the prohibition movement. The reason the pro-life movement is alive is not because we have better lobbyists. It's because we have people all over this country who are ministering to women and children in crisis, many of them, names will never be known, but who are standing and saying to vulnerable women, you do not have to go in the direction that Planned Parenthood is sending you. We will be with you and not only fight with you for the life of your child, but we will also gather around you and be the family that you need in raising that child. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. 